Lord, we ask you for your help tonight. I pray that you would give us practical help, practical wisdom, applied knowledge tonight of how we see ourselves in light of how we've been created. You are a creator. We are your creation, Lord, and we want to respond rightly to that. We want to see our work the way that you see our work, whether it's paid work, unpaid work in the home, unpaid work in volunteer, or paid work in our careers or our vocations. God, we want to see our jobs in light of how we were created, how you made us, Lord. So would you teach us tonight, give us faith to hear, ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive the things that your word has. And I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me and use me. I need your help this evening. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, so far, the context of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, especially the series on the Imago Dei, the image of God, the context has been Eden, has been perfection, has been paradise. As we've said before, Adam has a perfect body. Adam has a perfect mind. Eve, perfect body, perfect mind, perfect souls. They live in a perfect environment with perfect food, with a perfect relationship with God and with each other. It's completely paradise. Now, if I was to ask you what paradise was, how would you answer it? A lot of our uh, pop culture, a lot of our popular thought or commercials tell us that what paradise is is actually an escape from work. If we turn on the television and see a commercial like a Corona commercial or something, it, the, the setting or a Las Vegas commercial or something, the setting is an office, a cubicle, the drudgery, the, the, the toil of work, and then it escapes and the person's all of a sudden on a beach with trunks on and a beautiful ocean and their, their feet are in the warm sand and there's a bottle of Corona with a perfectly cut lime hanging out of the top of it and it's completely paradise. And it's an escape. This is kind of how we think of paradise. This is how we think of work. We want to escape work for paradise. Maybe some of us are even 24 years old already thinking of retirement. It's like you're 24. Like, I want to retire young. A lot of us can't wait till the weekend. I was traveling this last week and I was saying hi to the TSA agents and whatever, you know, saying hi, how are you? And one girl said, I'd be a lot better when it's Friday. And, I, and whenever I travel, I always lose track of days. I'm like, it must be Thursday. What day is it? She said, it's Monday. I'm like, wow, you have a long week ahead. <laughs> Sometimes we, you might walk into work tomorrow morning and go, I cannot wait until Friday. I cannot wait until my vacation. I cannot wait until retirement. I cannot wait until I'm not working. And that's a lot how we define, that's how we see paradise. That's how we see. If we were to build a perfect paradise, it would be the absence of work. But I hate to break it to you, that's not what we just read. In paradise, Adam and Eve were working. In paradise, God gave them a job. God gave them a calling. God gave them a vocation. And you saw it right there. There is work in paradise. Now, of course, today, there's drudgery in our work. There's the grind of work, the toil of work. The Bible is very clear that work is hard. Even if you do enjoy your work, you probably work way too much. That's probably more of the context. That's probably more relevant in a room like this. You work way too much. What we need, and what I'm realizing that we need, is we really need a biblical understanding of work. We need a biblical way of looking at work. And this sermon might not sound fun. You're like, this is my day off. Don't talk about work, please. But you and I really need an understanding, a theology of work. Because what are you working towards? 
If I was to stop and ask you or look you in the face and go, what are you working for? What are you working towards? What are your goals? Few of us can answer that question. Not who are you working for, what are you working for? It's an old story, like an old story I told um, when I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor um, years ago. And um, I told this story to 15-year-old high school students, and it had no relevance to their life at all. They didn't get the story. They didn't understand it. But I hope it has relevance to you. You might have heard this story before. It's been around quite a while. The story goes like this. There was a businessman on vacation, and he was on, in vacation, on vacation in Mexico. And there's a small coastal village in Mexico, and he was taking a walk, a stroll on the beach, and walks on a pier, goes to the end of the pier, and he sees this small little boat with just one fisherman in it, and the boat was docked. And inside this boat were several small, or actually several large, um, yellowfin tuna. And the businessman saw these tuna and started complimenting the fishermen, like, whoa, those tuna are, are beautiful. They look so delicious. How long did it take you to catch these fish? And the fisherman said, well, not that long, just a few hours. And, the fish, and then the businessman said, well, why didn't you stay out longer? And the fisherman looked at the businessman like, why would I stay out longer? It's like, so you can catch more fish. Why would you want to catch more fish? Why would I want to catch more fish? He goes, you can have more fish and, and then have more money. He's like, I have all the money I need. I catch just enough for me to live. I have some fish to give away to my friends. And then, you know, I, I, I live a, a full busy life. It's like, so what do you do with the rest of your time? If you only fish several hours a day, what do you do with the rest of your time? The fisherman says, well, uh, I fish a little for fun. And I play with my kids and I take a siesta with my wife. And I stroll into the village each evening and have dinner and play guitar with my friends, I have actually a very full and busy life. The businessman replied, and he scoffed at him and said this, I am a Harvard MBA, and I can help you. You should spend more time fishing, and with the proceeds, buy a bigger boat. And with the proceeds from a bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually, you would have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to middlemen, you would sell directly to the processor and eventually own your own cannery. You could control the product, processing, and distribution. And you, need to leave, you can leave this small little coastal village and move to Mexico City, then L.A., and then eventually New York City, where you would run your expanding enterprise. And the fisherman looked up at him and said, why would I do that? And how long will this take? And the businessman said, well, it would take about 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years. And then the, business, and the fisherman looked up and said, but what happens after that? And this what the businessman said. He said, this is the best part. When the time is right, you can announce an IPO, sell your company, stock to the public, and be rich. You would make millions. You would make millions. And the fisherman looked at him and said, millions? He said, millions. And then the fisherman said, well, what would I do after that? The fisherman said, you would retire. You moved to a small coastal village and fish whenever you wanted to fish. If I sat down and looked at you and said, what are you working for? It would be kind of like that. Well, I'm working for this and that, and you wouldn't know the end goal. Now, if you had a biblical theology work, obviously in this story, the fisherman's the hero, right? We all want to be that man. We all want to be like, I, want to, I just want to work like four hours a day, just enough, and I want, to, I want a siesta. I want that word in my life. I want a siesta. <laughs> And I want to stroll on the coastal village. I want that life. Now, if you have a biblical theology of work, the hero is actually both the fisherman and the businessman. The fisherman can actually be a lesson in contentment, and the businessman can be a lesson 
in creating jobs and being responsible with the food choices that people make and having that burden as well. With a biblical understanding of work, you can be a businessman and you can be a fisherman and do it rightly. We desperately need a biblical understanding of work. Gabe Lyons, in his book, Next Christian, which is um, a really good book, he describes that next Christians are followers of Jesus who believe that Christ's death and resurrection were not only meant to save people from something. So Christ's death and resurrection isn't just to save us from sin, death, and the devil. He writes, Christ's death and resurrection actually saves us to something. I think he gets this idea from Chuck Colson's book, How Shall We Live? In this book, he highlights the implications. The whole book is about the implications of the two. What has Christ saved us to? Not just from our sin, but what has Christ saved us to? One implication that he draws out in a chapter entitled, Called, Not Employed, Gabe Lyons writes this. Next Christians, quote, don't work at jobs. They serve in vocations. They see their occupational placement as part of God's greater mission. Christians don't work at jobs. They serve in vocations. They see their occupational placement being placed there by God. Wherever you work, placed there by God for God's greater mission. I think there's something that resonates with the follower of God that goes, yes, I want to be a part of God's greater mission and what I'm doing. I think this resonates with just humanity in general. Whether you're not even a follower of God in here, you want your work to matter. You want your work to be part of the greater good. We all want that. And if we were really to meditate on this quote and think about this quote, yes, I want that. I want my job to be part of God's greater mission. And we hear that and we say, yes, amen, I want that. But most all of us think, okay, now I have to switch my job. I can't do that where I'm at. I actually have to switch jobs in order to make my job have meaning. Actually, be, I maybe quit my job and work um, in medicine, quit my job and work in, in the church, quit my job and be a missionary. I can't do what I'm doing right now. And have this happen. Os Guinness was, um, has this famous quote where he talks about this and he says this. In terms of influence, the problem is not that most Christians aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. And I think this is true. I don't think it's necessarily where you are. If you're working in an honest job, whether in the home or in tech, or in medicine, or at a coffee house. If you're working an honest job, it's not that where you are is the biggest question. It's actually what you are. And I think this is why we need a reclaimed idea of work, a biblical understanding of the way that we see work. Because we need to become, as followers of God, we need to become what we should be where we are. Before you think about leaving your job and your vocation, first, let's become what we should be, where we are. And there's, no, there's not a better place to start than in Genesis 1 and 2. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, we are told what we are. We are taught who we are in light of being created by God. And it says this in Genesis 1.27. We read this a million times in the last two months. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. You were created in the image of God. Believe it or not, you were created in the image of God. This text teaches that not only are we created by God, 
You and I are created like God, to reflect him, to bear his image, to be human is to live into those qualities that belong to God, that have been stamped into our very nature as created human persons. And one of these characteristics, believe it or not, we just read it, one of these characteristics is work. And if you were to pick up the Bible casually and you were to read chapter one and two, one thing would jump at you is very, very clear, very, very explicit. And it is this. If you're just reading Genesis one and two for the very first time and you go like, I want to know who God is. And you read Genesis one and two, you're going to realize that in the beginning, God created. You're going to find out right away that God is a creator. God is creative. And this creativity is actually work. So all you creatives out there, that, don't, that everyone tells you creativity is not a job. It is a job. It is work. And this is how we know that. Because in Genesis 1, God creates, but then in Genesis 2, it says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. Creativity is work. Being creative is work that he had, had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. What is clear and often overlooked is that Genesis 1 and 2 depicts God as a worker. In Genesis chapter 1, God is depicted as a white-collar worker. He's designing. He's creating. He's architecting. He's project managing in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, God is depicted as a blue-collar worker. His hands are in the dirt, literally. He's planting a garden. He's making it beautiful. He makes man from the dirt, from the dust of the ground. He gets his hands dirty. He makes Eve from Adam's side performing a surgery, as it were. And not only does God's hands get dirty in the creation of this world and the creation of humanity by coming into contact with material, God in Christ took on material. God in Christ took on flesh to redeem and recreate us and this world. So, these two things, that God touched the material and then became material, and the fact that Jesus, when Christ came on this earth, he was a carpenter, he was a manual laborer, he was a creative, he worked with stone and wood, means there is no work. There is no work, manual or mental, that is menial and insignificant. There is no work that's insignificant. If you work in an office, the person that cleans your office, you should rejoice. They are like God. When you leave the office, they bring order out of chaos. The person who cleans your home, whether it's you, whether it's someone else, a roommate or something, or maybe you can hire someone, I don't know. That job is very significant, and you know this. The people that, that clean our streets in San Francisco, even though you have to move your car from 12 to 2 p.m. every Monday, and get, you get tickets about once every two months, for not forgetting to move your car. Rejoice that they're cleaning our streets. The people who work in the sanitary department in the city, rejoice. There is no menial work at all. Not only is God a worker, but in Genesis 1 and 2, God kept rhythm in his work. You notice that? He kept this rhythm, day and night. He worked, and then it says morning, evening, day one, morning, evening, day two. He kept this rhythm of day, night, but he also kept this rhythm of work, rest. Work six days, rested on one day. God keeps rhythm in his work, and some of you need to hear this. You don't have rhythm in your work at all. Your rhythm is this, work, 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 party, 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 work, 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 
party, 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 that's it. There is no rest. There is no sitting before God and reflecting, being quiet, turning everything off and going, being still and knowing he is God, that he's in control. You do not have that. It's not typical, but I I try to take one day off um, a week this last week. I didn't have a day off, so I've been working for two weeks without a day off, and that's not normal. I try really hard to take a Sabbath break. And when I don't take a day off, what happens is not only am I physically tired, and we all can, can experience that, and we all know this, but I'm mentally drained. I'm creatively drained. And so I read this quote yesterday, and it was very relevant to me. It might be relevant to you. If the divine creator chooses to rest, we human creators must rest from our work in order to sustain creativity. You must rest. This is not just physical rest. There is something about our minds that need rest. There is something about our creativity that needs rest. There is something about when we rest, we're able to be more creative. We need rest. You must rest. So when we humanity are created in God's image, surely one of the primary implications of this is that we were created to reflect the creative character of God and the working nature of God. God is a worker and a creative, and you and I were made in his image. Therefore, we are workers and we are creative. This is very clear in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's on the screen. I won't read it. Genesis 1, 26, 28. But you notice in verse 26 there, what you see first, it's, you see the intention. Notice the work of humanity is given first as intention and then instruction. In verse 26, it says, let us make humanity with the intention there, that's implied, of them having dominion. We're making humanity for them to have dominion, rule, care. The intention of humanity being created was that we would be placed in the garden to rule it, to care for it on this earth. We were created with the intention of working with God. Not just that. Verse 28 says that we were given the instruction once we were created. The instruction looked like this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. We were then instructed by God to work with him. It gets even clearer in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God placed humanity in the garden to work it and keep it. So what does all this mean? First, it means this. Work is not God's judgment because of the fall. Work is not God's judgment because of the fall. If you thought that work was a product of Adam and Eve sinning, you're wrong. There was work before the fall. Work is pre-fall, before Adam and Eve even sinned. Paradise included work. So I'm sorry if you thought that the church would say that you can get out of working, that everyone should quit their jobs and live in a monastery or a commune. That's not the biblical understanding of work. And I'm not simply talking about working for money. That's not what I'm talking about. Or working to make a living. That's part of it, sure, But the theology of work is much bigger than that. It's a higher calling than making money. The biblical understanding of work is a calling by God to cultivate and create on the earth that God has made. Work is a calling by God to cultivate and create. That's what work is. Please understand that your call to work is to cultivate and create. That's our call. That's what work means. So if you work at home and you're at home cultivating and creating... Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or dad. You're there serving. You're working. If you have a vocation where you serve and work, you're working. 
Your call is to cultivate and create. If you're unemployed, which is a huge reality in our economy today, you should be serving. You should be working. And maybe not for money. I don't, I don't mean taking any job. I know there's complexities with pay and such, with unemployment. I understand that. I'm saying you should be as made in the image of God, either working on a craft or a skill to get that vocation that you want or volunteering. And here's why I say that. You and I, every single person in here, has what the reformers call a cultural mandate. You and I have a cultural mandate that has nothing to do with money. It was given to humanity before there was even such thing as an exchange of goods and services. You and I have a cultural mandate by being made in the image of God to create and to cultivate. So no matter where we are at in career or in life, we are all given a call by God to be creators and cultivators on this earth. We are creators and we are cultivators, or as Andy Crouch calls this very poetically, we're artists and gardeners. Those in finance claim this because I know you're very analytical and you want to be artists, but you're just not. So go to work and you're like, what are you? I'm like, I'm an artist. I'm a gardener. That's what my pastor said. Even if you're in finance, you are this. You are an artist. You're a gardener. As such, you have responsibility, whether you get paid or not, to bring out the potential in where you work, no matter where you labor, no matter where you live. We're to bring out the potential in our work. We're bring out the potential in where we live. You might do this as a mom or as a nanny, bringing out the potential in your child. You might do this as someone who works in coffee, bringing out the potential of a coffee bean. That's all, you know, all that, all that coffee culture is, is bringing out the potential of coffee bean? All of it. From barista championships to the whole culture that surrounds coffee to roasting championships to the origin of the bean, all that is just bringing out the potential in a bean of coffee. And we all say, amen. <laughs> you might do this in finance, and you're bringing out the potential of, good, of a good business deal or bringing out economic development to a neighborhood, maybe. You might do this in tech, bringing out the potential of technology to serve the common good. You might do this as an artist, bringing out the potential of a blank canvas and paint or a solid piece of stone as you fashion it into sculpture or in fashion with a beautiful piece of fabric. You might do this as a chef with food or an urban farmer with soil and seed on your patio. You might do this as a musician with musical notes or a physician with the human body or an educator or tutor with young minds. This is our first job description, to work the earth and take care of it. You and I, no matter what profession we are in, that is our cultural mandate, our job. Partnering, cooperating with God. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and to keep it. Now, some practical implications of this. I want to draw two before we close. The first one is, how do we work? How are you and I called to work then? No matter where, what vocation we're called to, what, no matter what we're called to do, the first thing is we're, we have to realize that we're in collaboration with God, that we are in collaboration with God. No matter what you do, as honest labor, you are in collaboration with God. 
Human work is collaboration with God. It's a partnership with God. Genesis 1.28, God planted a garden and then put man in the garden that he would work it, protect it, cause it to flourish, take care of it. See, God could have done everything himself. God could have watered, planted, brought about the increase. He could have managed the garden himself. He could have put Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve, I just want you to just chill here. Just hang out. I got it all. I'm going to make everything grow. I'm going to make everything do its thing. I'm going to plant. I'm going to water. I'm going to do it all. Just don't eat that tree right there, and we're all good. But God doesn't do that. God plants a garden with his own hands, puts Adam in it, and says, would you maintain it? Would you keep it? Would you protect it? Would you bring about its flourishing? This is incredibly humble of God. That if Adam didn't keep it, Eden, the garden would have turned into a jungle. How humble of God to partner with that. Do you see the humility of God through Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2? Actually, it's very humble of God to look at Adam and say, it's not good that you're alone. I need to make a helper for you. How incredibly humble of God to say, Adam, you're alone. I need to make you someone to be your soulmate, to come alongside you, to help you. How incredibly humble of God to go, Adam and Eve, I need you to partner with me to maintain this earth. I need you to do this. It's incredibly humbling of God to do this. The humility of God. God made the world in such a way to depend on human cooperation. And this is what this is. This is nature and culture. Nature and culture. You have to to get these two phrases here. You have to get these two understandings when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's nature and there's culture. Nature is what God gives us in the created order. Culture is what we do with it. Nature is what God gives us. Culture is what we do with it. Nature is raw materials. Culture is rearranging these raw materials for human flourishing. This is our cultural mandate, to create culture. This is why the Bible starts in the garden and ends in a city. We are called to create culture. Nature gives us eggs. Culture gives us omelets. Nature gives us words and experiences. Culture gives us stories. Nature gives us food. Culture gives us culinary experiences. Nature gives us cotton. Culture gives us denim. Amen. Nature gives us sound, and culture gives us music. Nature gives us colors, and culture gives us art. God gives us raw materials, and what he calls us to do is rearrange them in such a way to bring about culture, to rearrange them in such a way to bring about flourishing, to keep and work the earth. Nature is divine creation. Culture is human cultivation. In the cultural mandate, God commissioned humanity not only to preserve the environment. We have a responsibility to keep. That word, to, to work and keep it, that word keep, it means protect. You and I have a responsibility to protect the environment. That is our cultural mandate. But it's also our job to develop the potential of the earth and extract the resources from it for the common good. Those two things must go hand in hand. However, our practice, our practice, especially in the church, has been to stress the indispensability of God's part and undervalue the indispensability of our part. Pastors, churches will talk a very long time about God's part 
but we don't talk about humanity's part. Around this time, around October, is harvest time. That's why a lot of churches have harvest festivals. It's an ancient tradition, an ancient practice of praising God for harvest, for the good harvest that they reaped. And that's good, and it's right, and it's God-given. But what we do is we exaggerate the divine and undervalue the human. John Stott told a story of a gardener in London. And the vicar, vicar was coming to tour the garden. And this gardener took the, the vicar around and showed him all the garden and all the roses and all the shrubs and all the flowers and how he kept it and how he did all these things. And as John says, John Stott says in a, in a wonderful British accent, that vicar, this vicar did what vicars love to do, wax long about the glory of God. And he waxed long about the nature and, and God in creation and how God made the rose and how God made the shrub and how God made the garden. And this was actually making the, the gardener mad. As he was going around, and the gardener was like, and then I did this. And he goes, oh, God, and he did this. He said, and then I did this, and then, oh, the, God, he created this. And, the, vic- and, the, and, the, and the, um, the gardener was actually getting quite mad. And then he finally turned, once the vicar said one more thing about God and his creation, he said, vicar, you should have seen this garden when God had it all to himself. <laughs> because it wasn't a garden at all. It was a jungle. It was wilderness. And this is what this is. You and I partner with God. God says, here's a garden, and my wife, bless her heart, she's an amazing cook, chef, I don't know. She's great with food, but she can't grow it at all. So when, no matter what I try, or whatever I try to do to, to help her grow things, she's afraid of bugs, and she doesn't like, and she kills everything. Like, every single thing, she has a black thumb. If you, do, if you neglect something, you can pray for the plant. The plant will die. It's like God partners with us. Unless I'm out there watering our little urban patio herb garden, unless I'm out watering it and caring for it, it will die. God takes our cooperation. This is, this is wonderful. This is humble of God to do. It's also God's part is indispensable and our part is indispensable. We have to keep our homes we have to keep our jobs. We have to keep these things in order. So, do you have to be in a Christian or in Christian finance for it to count? Do you have to be in Christian art or Christian music for it to count working with God? Do you have to do Christian coffee? No. Please, no. <laughs> That's not what this means. Sure, there are great Christian art and music, but you must see your job in a secular world as something sacred because you have been made in the image of God and you have been redeemed, if you follow Jesus, redeemed by God. Dorothy Sayers, who was a British novelist during World War II, said this, and nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments. She has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. Your work in art or finance or in the home or in tech or in health or medicine, chemistry, biology, whatever you do, whatever you do, as you do it honestly, unto God, it is sacred. Please understand this. 
please see your job as something as needing me to be brought underneath the authority and the power of God. Point two, how do we work? Lastly, we work as servants. You're a servant. You have to get that. No matter if you are the lowest person on the totem pole at your job or the CEO of your company, you are a servant. Verse 15 in chapter 2, God put Adam in the garden to work and to keep it. That word work, that verb work literally means serve. The two verbs, to serve and to keep, do not indicate what people are to do to provide for themselves in Genesis 2, but what they are to do for God. God does not say, I want you to do this for your good. He says, I want you to do this for my glory. We are stewards, servants that God has made to care for his creation. But this is where the problem lies. This is the deep problem that all of us have with our work. This is the problem. We're not servants. Because why is work so hard? Why is work drudgery? Why is work so painful? We know from Genesis 3, which we'll get to next week, finally, we know it's because of sin. And what is sin? What is Genesis 3? It's making the world, making work about us. When work was never supposed to be about us, our jobs, our careers, our vocation, our call, were never supposed to be about us. We were made to be servants. We were made to be partners with God in caring, cultivating the earth. But we made it about us. Adam and Eve did this. This is what the fall is all about. They made it about them. And we cannot say that we would never do this. We can't read Genesis 3 and go, Psh, I would never do that. I, I totally abide by the rules. I would not have eaten of that tree, no matter how good it looked. I would have not done that. You can't say that because you do this in your jobs every single day. We make our job about us. This even happens in the professional ministry of the church. We use our jobs to serve ourselves. We make our jobs about us, about what we can get from these jobs. It was not, not longer than a month that I lived here that I realized that San Francisco, the way that people see San Francisco is one giant portfolio builder. That's what San Francisco is. That's what San Francisco is to many of you. I'm here two years. Why? To build my portfolio, to build my education. It's for my, I want to say on my resume, on, what, 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 on my portfolio, yeah, I was creative in San Francisco for two years. Yeah, I made it there. I worked in this company for two years there, for four years, for five years. It's a portfolio builder. We look at San Francisco and what it can give us instead of going there, what can we, how can we serve it? How can we move into the city and serve this city? How can we bring about our cultural mandate in San Francisco? How can we do this? We make work about us. This is why our job really never satisfies us. This is why we can't wait to get out after two years. This is why we're always looking to the next thing, even though we don't know what the next thing is. It's like we were created with power and the opportunity to serve, but we use it as an opportunity to serve ourselves. And this is never how it was supposed to be. One commentator writes about our cultural mandate. He says, there is no magic in Eden. Gardens cannot look after themselves. They are not self-perpetuating. Man is placed there to work it and to keep it. The word we have translated work is abad. The normal Hebrew verb meaning to serve. 
So again, the note is sounded that man is placed in the garden as a servant. He is there not to be served, but to serve. We are on this earth not to be served. We are in our vocations, our, our careers, our homes, not to be served, but to serve. But we haven't done this. We can have the most noble professions of service in the community and make it about us. We get stingy and greedy and prideful and jaded. We can have the coolest job for a year and then get jaded and think it's the worst job. We get prideful thinking, I deserve more. We get greedy and prideful. But look at Jesus. Look at what it says about Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If anyone could be prideful, it was Jesus. If anyone deserved to be served, it was him. He came as the model man, the new Adam, to fulfill humanity's cultural mandate, come not to be served, but to serve. And not just that, it says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus doesn't just come to model. He doesn't just come to model for us what being a true human is. For if that was only what he came to do, it would crush every single one of us. If Jesus is just your model, that model will crush you. Jesus came to redeem. Jesus comes to redeem you from your aimless pursuits at work, to redeem our work so that we can once again be partners with God, collaborators with God. Jesus came not to save us from something. He didn't just come to save us from our sin. He did. From our death, he did. And from Satan, he did. But to something. Redemption is what we need. And this is why we can't rest. This is why a lot of us can't Sabbath. We can't truly Sabbath. When we rest, we can't find rest for our souls. Sabbath seems to be distant. We can't find true rest. In order to rest, a lot of us self-medicate with alcohol and sex and relationships and drugs and parties and bars. We can't find rest because our work is not really about work. It's about us finding a place in the city. It's about us finding a place in this creative world. It's about us finding a place in our profession. It's about us finding a place in this world. We have to stop working for something that only can be found in Christ. You must stop working for something that can only be found in Christ. Stop working your job for fulfillment or rest or peace that only comes from Jesus. And when it happens, when you find your hope and your rest in Christ... In Jesus, when this happens, it realigns your heart and it realigns your priorities. So work just becomes work. And your failures won't crush you in your job and your successes won't define you. Making money becomes a way not to feel secure, but a way to serve and be generous. And we think of day seven when God rested. What was God doing when he rested? Was God like, okay, I need a break. This whole creation thing of the universe, it's got me tired. Adam and Eve, I need some me time. So you're over there. I'm going to sp- spend some God time over here, just me, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, doing our thing. And um, just don't, don't bother me for like a day. Was God really resting like that? What was God doing when he was resting? 
As we studied in Genesis chapter 1, what God was doing in creation was giving order and purpose to this world. And what God did in day 7 when he sat back and he oversaw the purpose. He oversaw what he had created. What he does is he takes his time and he steps back and he lets run what he made to work as he oversees this whole process. What our rest needs to do is involve the same things. We have to rest recognizing that he's in control, not us. Have you ever had the best work week of your life and still forgot something? Like you put together the best week ever, the best presentation ever, and something still was missing. Or you had the best work week and your whole relationships fell apart while you were working the 100-hour work week. We have to spend a day of rest and say this, God, you are in control. I can put together the best work week, the best work year, the best the best project, I can put it together, but you're the one who sustains it. You're the one who's in control. So no matter what vocation you're in, in the home, outside the home, whether you're someone that is that has to go out and raise money or go make money by being creative or someone that has to show up every day at work and just do this humdrum sort of same thing every single day, you must step back on a day and rest and go, God, you're in control and I'm not in control. And find rest for your souls. And so to be completely human is not just found in work alone. We cannot be fulfilled through work alone. To be completely human is found when we lay aside our work to worship. We set aside our work and we worship God. We set aside our work and rest. And we get mental rest, soul rest that can only be found in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God who redeems, that you can even redeem our work. I pray that you would give this church a biblical understanding, that cultural mandate to serve, to be collaborators with you, to bring about redemption, renewal, service, love, human flourishing, whatever, Lord, whatever you call us to do that we would do. But I pray that for the next several minutes, your presence would be here in such a profound way that we would find rest for our souls. If we're trying to work to make a name for ourselves, that we would lay that aside and find our place in you. If we made work God, a God, a idol, an idol, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you would find souls in here that are repentant, that turn from idolatry, from sin to the living God. And restore us as workers for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.